Well, if you're joining us and visiting with us this morning, we, you may be confused. Why are, why are we talking about Jesus' death in the middle of Advent season? Uh, it's because we've been going through a series in Matthew for a couple years now, almost three years, and uh, we are coming to the end, and it just so happens in God's providence, we are right in the middle of the crucifixion narrative um, as we enter Advent season, which is appropriate, actually, because as we talk, we'll talk about on um, Sunday, on Christmas Eve, when we do our Christmas message, this, even as Matthew presents it, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus was born. As you think about Jesus, and as you think about the crucifixion, as you think about his death, have you ever thought or asked yourself the question, um, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Who's responsible? Now, as Matthew has been recording and recounting what all the things surrounding Jesus' death, all the trial and the, the betrayal, all of that, Matthew's been at pains to show two things, or to hold together two things. On the one hand, he is trying to show that everything that happens to Jesus wasn't by happenstance. It was planned by the Father. Jesus accepted the Father's mission, and he has anticipated, he has called the shots. He has declared, here's what's going to happen to me before it happens. So we've seen that. But at the exact same time, in all of those events, even the ones that Jesus has foretold, prophesied about, showing that he is who he said he is, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, at the same time, those events even that he's predicted, that he is following in his, the Father's plan, there is at the same time great evil. Really, the pinnacle of human evil was the crucifixion of the Son of God. You can't think of an action that is worse for God the Son, who has eternally existed, to become man and to do good and to preach the message of how to repent and trust in himself and him as the rightful king to bring humanity back to God and then for that humanity to crucify him, to reject him. Well, in this passage, as we progress, Matthew reflects as he speaks to his Jewish audience, as primarily who Matthew is speaking to, his, the original audience would have been his Jewish audience, probably a Jewish Christian audience, and he is reflecting in this section on the responsibility. Who is responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? And so as we come to the text this morning, the big idea that Matthew would have, is presenting to his original audience, and that there's a principle there for us as well, is this. Recognize your sin is leading, recognize your sin leading to Jesus' crucifixion and surrender to him as righteous king for his atonement. Recognize your sin leading to Jesus' crucifixion and surrender to him as righteous king for atonement. And so, as we enter the text this morning, you remember what has just happened. Jesus, uh, Jesus, in chapter 26, he was condemned to death by the Jewish authorities, by the Sanhedrin. They said, he's committed blasphemy by claiming to be the divine Messiah. Remember, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you've said it, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming 
again on the, with power and great glory. And he, the Jewish authorities have said he's committed blasphemy. He deserves death. But, but you remember that the Jews don't have the authority of capital punishment at this time. Rome is in charge, and so they have to take Jesus to the governor. So back in 27, 1 and 2, they, we see Jesus bound, led, being led to the governor. Last week, we saw what happened to Judas, but now we return to what's going on with Jesus as he comes before the governor. So we've kind of had a Jewish trial chapter 26, now we get the Roman trial, so to speak. We pick up in verse 11, and in verses 11 through 14, we see that Jesus confesses to be the king of the Jews to Pilate. Jesus confesses to be the king of the Jews to Pilate. Let's look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, governor being Pilate, as we see, the one who has authority in Judea, doesn't have authority in Galilee, has authority in Judea. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now this is kind of interesting how this starts, because where did Pilate get that? Or to understand that the charges that are being brought by the Jewish leaders are effectively Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now you're like, where did they get that? Well, think back to what Jesus has confessed in Matthew 26. Remember what the, the high priest, remember what Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ? Now the notion of being the Christ, it's not a last name. It is a title. It is a particular title. It is a title that means anointed one, the Greek equivalent of Messiah, and the Messiah is the king, the one who is the descendant from David, who is the rightful king over all Israel and over the world. And so the title Christ does indicate kingship. Now, the Jewish leaders have condemned Jesus as for Jesus for being blasphemous by claiming to be not only a human Messiah, but a divine Messiah. But now they've got to reframe the charges in such a way that the Romans will deal out capital punishment. They're not going to really care too much about uh, the Jewish scriptures. They're not going to care about the prophecies. What they're going to care about is something that's going to make Jesus out to be a threat. So you can spin the idea of Jesus being the Christ to being the king of the Jews. It's true, but it's got a very political and even military sort of ring to it. And that's what the Romans would have cared about. So evidently, the, the Jewish leaders who have brought Jesus to the governor, to Pilate, for judgment and hopefully for death, have brought this charge. And so Pilate, much like Caiaphas, much like the chief priest, he asks Jesus a question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds. This is the only time Jesus responds, which is significant. And he says this, you have said it. In fact, he says, you are saying it, which is much like what he did with the high priest, with Caiaphas. What does that mean? You've said it. It is an affirmation. Jesus is like, you said it. You are saying it. But it is also something that pushes it back onto Pilate. You're the one saying that. You're the one bringing it up. But yes, I acknowledge that. So Jesus is 
confessing to be the king of the Jews. He's not, gonna, he's not thinking of being, in the same way that Pilate might think of the king of the Jews as a military political conqueror, someone who's a potential threat to Rome. Jesus isn't thinking of it like that, but as far as the title goes, yeah, you've said it. I am the king of the Jews. That is the fundamental charge that earned him the death sentence from the Jews, blasphemy, and it is the fundamental charge that he will be crucified under by Rome. If you were to flash forward even to probably the the next um, page or so in your Bible, you would see the crucifixion, and you would see on the cross the charge against Jesus is, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is the charge that he will be crucified under. Now, notice the they don't think, uh, the, 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 uh, the chief priests and the elders don't think that this is enough to get Pilate to crucify him. Evidently, they sense that Pilate's maybe not convinced or he's kind of mocking Jesus, like, really, you're the king of the Jews. Uh, notice what they do in verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, so that's the Sanhedrin, those are the leaders of Israel that's consistent, the chief priests and the elders, the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, they're accusing more. They're heaping up charges against Jesus. We don't know what they are. Uh, um, probably one of them is this man just said he's going to destroy the temple. Maybe there's other things, false charges they bring against him. They're trying to, because they're trying to angle Pilate to kill Jesus. That's their whole goal. But notice what Jesus does. When he was accused by chief, the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Jesus is silent. Now, he was silent before when he was before the Sanhedrin, and now he's silent again, which is interesting. And Pilate takes note of it, verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Look at all these charges. Now, Jesus has answered one of them. Yeah, uh, you've said it, I'm the king of the Jews. But whatever these other charges are, Jesus isn't answering them. He's staying silent. Verse 14, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Why is Pilate greatly amazed? Well, usually when people are on trial for their life, especially in that context, uh, the defendant's testimony uh, was, was a big part of a Roman trial to either, uh, to either condemn or acquit the accused. And Jesus isn't saying anything. All these charges that are being brought against him, he's not saying anything. Why is that? Well, two reasons. One, as we've already seen in Matthew 26, uh, with him being silent, Jesus is not fighting back intentionally. Now, Jesus could. He could answer all of these trumped-up charges. He could answer all of the, the false charges against him. And if he answered and he spoke, he would have to tell the truth. If he speaks up, he has to tell the truth. Uh, And so he's not fighting. Why is he not fighting? Because he knows his mission. He knows he is, uh, the father's plan is for him to die. This fulfills an Old Testament prophecy back in Isaiah 53. We quote Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 a lot because even in the book of Matthew and the rest of the gospels and the rest of the New Testament, it is a chapter spoken 700 or so years before Jesus was born that predicts the the necessity of the death of the ultimate Davidic king, the suffering servant of the Lord. And I want to highlight for you in Isaiah 53, 6 through 8, what Jesus is fulfilling even by being silent. Isaiah 53, 6 
says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him, servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You see, even in Isaiah, the prediction is that the, the suffering servant, he's going to be oppressed. Judgment's going to be taken away from him. He's going to be silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. But in all of this, as Jesus has already explained, even back in, back in Matthew, the servant is bearing the sins of his people. This is why Jesus isn't fighting back. He is the lamb who's to bear the iniquity of his people, their sins in their place. Here's the other reason that Jesus is being silent, though. He has effectively controlled the situation with his silence. The only time he speaks, both in the Jewish trial and in this trial, is to acknowledge that he is the king. Yes, I'm the Christ. You've said it. And not only that, I'm the son of man who's going to come with the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's what he said to the Jews. And this week, to Pilate, he says, yeah, you've said it. I'm the king of the Jews. Jesus has controlled the charge that he will be crucified under. The reason Jesus will be crucified is because he claimed to be the king. The king over all. Not only from a human perspective, that he is a human king, which is true. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the idea of the Messiah is that he's going to be a human king from the line of David to rule over Israel and the whole world. But he also claimed to be the king, the divine king, sent from the Father in heaven to rule on behalf of the Father on earth. This is the thing that is going to get Jesus crucified, the claim to be king. Again, it's the charge that is hung over the cross, and Jesus has intentionally kept his silence except for that charge. The Jews thought he was blaspheming. You can't possibly be the divine Messiah. The Romans, as we find out here in um, Pilate and his soldiers, representative of the nations of the world, really, they disregard him. They think it's foolish. This, this guy who's just it looks like an everyday Hebrew, everyday Israelite, he's claiming to be king of the Jews. I mean, it's very clear Pilate doesn't think he's a threat. So he's disregarded by the nations, and the Jews think he's blaspheming. What's the truth? Well, this is part of Matthew's whole point in his whole gospel, that it is very clear Jesus was right. Jesus was, his claim was true. Over and over again, all the fulfilled prophecies, things like Jesus walking on water, which is only God's prerogative in the Old Testament, multiple, multiple things that Matthew has laid out in his gospel. And the reader of Matthew, like, comes to it and understands, yeah, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the divine Messiah. 
But those who aren't his disciples are going to kill him for that claim. Now, you might think, well, I'm not going to do the same thing, but let's, let's take a step back and let's think about our own hearts. We all start as rebels to God's reign. That's where we start. We all start with the thinking that I rule my life. Um, I have authority over my life. I get to have say over my life. And I'm certainly not going to submit to anyone else's rule. I'm certainly not going to submit to God's rule. That's where we all start. That's the sin problem. That's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. To that point, they've started in that place of of rebellion. Rebellion to the point where the true king does come around. Rather than submit to the true king to have ourselves be king, we would be right there in the same shoes, crucifying the Son of God. If God left it to that, if, if it was up to us, if it was up to us when the true king comes, rather than give him authority, rather than submit to him, rather than follow him and let him have say in our life, we'd be right there along with the Judases and the Herods and the Pilots and the chief priests and elders of the people crucifying the king, the true king. But here's the good news. Jesus is not only the king, like he has that authority. Matthew has clearly shown that this is the true king. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Christ. But unlike every other king and human king, this king came to die for his people. He came to die for their rebellion. He came to die for their treason. To atone, to cleanse, to cover, to remove their sin and rebellion and to bring them back to God. Remember that Isaiah passage, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've gone each and every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, this is the true shepherd and what is he doing? He is atoning for his people so that he can bring them back to God because God, knowing God, submitting to God, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest joy the fundamental reality of true life. And so this king is going to do what it takes to bring his people back for their best to God, including atoning for the rebellion and sin. And the question to you and the question for Matthew has always been, are you going to follow him? Are you going to surrender? You you can't come to Jesus and you can't come to God without surrender laying down arms. It's called repentance. It's a fundamental shift in your whole thinking in life where you say, I'm done living for myself. I'm done being king. I recognize that I deserve God's wrath and judgment justly, and yet I see the good king. I see the true king and what he did to cover my sin and to bring me back to God, and I trust him and I'm sworn allegiance to him, and I'm going to live for him by his grace, by his power through the Holy Spirit. So the question really boils down to this. Are you going to crucify him, or are you going to surrender to him? These are the only two options that you have. 
Jesus confesses to be the king of the Jews to Pilate. He is the rightful king. He is your rightful king. Will you surrender and trust him? But then we see this. How is this all going to play out? Pilate, uh, and we see in verses 15 through 19 that, you know, Pilate doesn't think much of this claim. I mean, he just, he disregards Jesus like, yeah, right, you're the king of the Jews. You're no threat. So what is Pilate going to do? Well, Pilate, in verses 15 through 19, Pilate's going to seek to release the righteous Christ. He thinks he's innocent. He thinks he's righteous even, uh, which is beyond innocent. And so he's going to try to maneuver the situation uh, so that he releases the righteous Christ. Look at verse 15. Now, the feast, of the, the, the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So, remember the feast is Passover. Passover, you've got the, the lamb slain, uh, looking back to the Old Testament, that effectively releases Israel from uh, being in prison, being under bondage. This is the event, the feast that celebrates them being brought out, brought from out from under bondage. So evidently, this custom has developed to kind of picture that. That um, here's the feast, here's Passover, and the governor is going to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now note this: who gets to initiate who's released? Who make the, who decides who gets released? The crowd does. It's who the crowd wants. They're the ones bringing the initiative of who's going to be released. And then the governor's going to say, all right, we'll, we'll release that person. So it's their initiative. Uh, it's not like, here's the, uh, notice how it's not framed. It's not framed as the governor brings forth uh, a couple or four people, and you get to decide between those four people. This is whomever you want. This is an open choice. Now, that's significant because watch what happens in verse 16. And they had, now who's the they? Now you might think, well, that's just the generic they, you know, like them. Like we use this all the time, right? Um, well, the last reference to a they was the Jews, to the crowd, uh, whom they wanted. Uh, Pilate's going to release to them, the governor's going to release for the crowd, any one prisoner whom they, the crowd, wanted. And they, we would naturally expect, the crowd. The crowd has then, uh, was having then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, what is Matthew communicating to us? He's not saying that Barabbas is being held by the Romans, although that may be true. He's indicating the selection that the crowd has already made. In other words, a Barabbas wasn't a spring of the moment idea. Barabbas uh, by the way, Bar, um, Barabbas is not like a, a name, like a, well, it is a last name, but it's like what uh, Jesus said earlier to Peter, blessed are you, uh, Simon, Bar, Jonah. It's the same pattern that's going on here. Bar, Jonah just means son of Jonah. So Bar, Abbas means son of Abbas or son of Abba. S uh, some think it may indicate son of the father. So it's this guy's last name. Let's put it that way. It's this guy's last name. It's not a first name. It's this guy's last name. But in any case, um, you can imagine that if the, they, they know, this crowd knows, this is the day, this is the feast when Pilate's going to release someone. So they've had to probably talk to Pilate ahead of time and say, we want this guy. 
He's notorious. Um, that's the word. Or uh, of note would be kind of a way. It could, sometimes it could have a negative connotation. Sometimes it could have a positive connotation. It's probably pretty neutral right here. Uh, Barabbas is of note. We find out from, say, Mark that um, Barabbas, uh, Barabbas was an a, uh, insurrectionist. He's a rebel. Uh, he committed or was involved in some sort of insurrection in Jerusalem against Rome. So here's the guy that was a threat to Rome. And the Jews who don't like Rome, they want this guy back. They want their freedom fighter back. They already know. They've already arranged it before Jesus steps onto the scene. They have this notorious prisoner they've already kind of arranged for, for release but what's Pilate going to do? This is the situation. So they've already arranged for the, the, the crowds coming to receive Barabbas back. That's what they've arranged. But then Pilate plays uh, some political games. So when they had gathered, so the crowd gathers, and Pilate says to them, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, son of Abbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, uh, Pilate's being shrewd. As a uh, politician, he's being shrewd. Um, they've already arranged for Barabbas, but at the last minute, he's going to give them a choice. You guys asked for Barabbas, your notorious prisoner, the one you wanted back, your freedom fighter that you wanted back. Um, but, you know, here I have Jesus in custody. And he knows based on, I mean, Pilate's not stupid, right? Pilate knows what goes on in Jerusalem. He knows like uh, less than a week ago, Jesus marched into Jerusalem on a donkey and effective people are proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David. They're effectively proclaiming Jesus to be king. He's made a ruckus in the temple. Um, Pilate knows that Jesus is popular. He knows that he's popular. So is Barabbas. But he thinks, he's calculated that Jesus, who is called Christ, notice he highlights Jesus' so-called title, right? Uh, the title that he's going to be crucified under, the Christ, the King of the Jews. He thinks the crowd is going to want, based on popularity, this one who's claiming to be the King, this one who's claiming to be the Messiah. And so what he does, if the, all things go together as planned, they're going to choose Jesus. The crowd is going to choose Jesus, and the religious leaders aren't going to have anything to say about it because they're afraid of the crowds. They, we've seen that earlier in the, the narrative. So he's effectively going to humiliate the religious leaders, who he's not on great terms with anyway, and he's going to release an innocent man. It all works out. It's not based on justice. It's based on political maneuvering. And we can even see that in his reasoning. Verse 18, for, so this explains why Pilate's doing what he's doing. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. See, Pilate's aware that Jesus is popular and that he's a threat. He's a threat to the authority of the chief priests and the elders of the people. So he knows this isn't sincere. He knows he's trying to be maneuvered and pigeonholed into executing Jesus but there's more, verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, uh, dreams have been uh, a huge portion, especially early on in Matthew, uh, where God has spoken even to uh, Gentiles through dreams, 
to protect Jesus. Now, we're not sure if it's the same thing here, but at the very least, uh, a dream like this would have borne actually great weight with a Roman. To think that some sort of supernatural dream is being said, oh, this is a warning. Maybe he thinks from the gods or something like that. Uh, and so he, he believes that. He believes what his wife is saying, that this is a righteous guy. Have nothing to do with him. Like, stay away. Don't touch him with a 10-foot pole. He's a righteous man. So this is the reasoning that's going on why Pilate wants to release Jesus. It's not because he's just. It's because he wants to get the political upper hand. He doesn't want to, uh, he doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy. He's innocent, doesn't really care much about him, doesn't think too much about him, but he wants to release him, but in such a way that it's going to humiliate the religious leaders. Now, what happens leads us to our third portion of the text this morning, and it's this. Israel receives responsibility for crucifying the Christ. In verses 20 through 26, Israel receives responsibility for crucifying the Christ. So Pilate's made his gambit, he's strategized, he's making, making his maneuvers, but uh, then the other side is making its maneuvers too. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now, at this point, we need to make a note. The crowd that is here is not the crowd that was crying out Hosanna to the son of David when Jesus came in. Not the same crowd. Sometimes you hear that, like the crowd was just so fickle that one day it's claiming Jesus is the king and then the other day it's yelling crucify him. That's probably not actually true. Go back to Matthew 21 and we can actually see how Matthew set this up. Um, so Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry. At the very beginning, Jesus gets uh, the donkeys, um, and he, he rides into Jerusalem in no uncertain terms, proclaiming he's the Messiah, he's the son of David. The people who are following Jesus are acclaiming that he is the son of David. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those are Galilean crowds. Those are crowds from the north. Those are crowds who are following Jesus because of all the ministry he's done way up north in his home territory of Galilee. But notice a switch, and I noted it for you when we went through that passage, in verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What Matthew does is he has a narrative handoff right there. Jesus, by the Galilean crowds, by those up north, has been acclaimed son of David, Hosanna. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the northern, uh, that's what uh, Galilee is saying. But then he does this thing in the narrative where Jerusalem, portrayed as a character, is asking the question, who is this? And the most they're willing to go right now is, oh, he's a prophet. And then as things unfold the next few days in the temple, he's defeating, he, he's, he's answering the religious leaders, he's, he's speaking against the temple, all of this. We don't necessarily know how the crowd, the Jerusalem crowd, is going to respond. In fact, at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus anticipates 
being rejected by Jerusalem. He's been accepted by Galilee, but the question is, what about the crowds in Jerusalem? The crowds that gather before Pilate are Jerusalem crowds. How do I know that? Well, Bar Abbas is a notorious prisoner. Who's he notorious for? What's he notorious for? He's notorious for staging a rebellion in Jerusalem. So he's notorious in and around Jerusalem. And the crowds want this guy. They're Jerusalem crowds. In other words, what's about to happen is the answer from Jerusalem. Galilee has accepted Jesus. Jerusalem, as we will see, rejects him. Because that's what verse 20 says. Now the chief priests and the elders, the leaders, the shepherds, persuaded the crowd, the Jerusalem crowd, to ask for Bar Abbas and destroy Jesus. Probably wouldn't have been that hard to do because what has the accusation from the Jews been against Jesus? He's blasphemed. This guy you've been hearing in the temple, he blasphemed. Here's what he said. Not only did he blaspheme, he also said he's going to destroy the temple. Remember that charge? We said that's a false charge against Jesus, but, he, um, um, but they brought it against him at his trial. And in fact, as we look ahead in the crucifixion scene, those who wander by the cross, they say, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? So that's probably what they're saying. That's probably how the chief priests and the elders have persuaded the crowds. Oh, this, is, this guy is a false messiah. This guy is a pretender. This guy is a blasphemer. They persuaded the crowds. And so what we see in verse 21 is the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? So maybe there's some conferring, maybe there's some murmuring in the crowd. Then he comes back, he asks the same question. And they said, Barabbas. The one they wanted before, the freedom fighter, the one who rebelled against Rome. We want that guy. We don't want the blasphemer. So Pilate uh, is miscalculated what's going to happen. Now, notice what Pilate does. What Pilate says next is actually really surprising. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now he's highlighting again, who is this Jesus? He's the one who's being called Christ, the king of the Jews. And uh, what's surprising about what Pilate is doing is just because uh, the crowd gets to release one prisoner, why does that mean they have any say with regard to the other? Like, that's Pilate's jurisdiction. That's what he's supposed to do. Like, the crowd can select someone to be released, but why, does, why do they get to say what, uh, what to do with the other one? It's really surprising. Why, um, what is Pilate doing? Pilate's not interested in justice. He's, been, he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to distance himself from all responsibility. He's trying to have nothing to do with this guy. He might also be thinking, well, uh, that didn't work, uh, but maybe, maybe they just want me to, you know, imprison him or whatever. Like, um, you know, so maybe he's expecting the answer, uh, you know, flog him and let him go. But what happens? They all said, he must be crucified. The form here of the verb is, it's an imperative. Uh, it's something we don't have in our language. It's a third person imperative. But to bring it over, you would say something like this. He must be crucified. Which is also very surprising. Crucifixion was a Roman 
was a Roman punishment. It was a Roman form of execution. The Jews would stone you uh, or, or maybe strangulation or something like that, but not crucifixion. Crucifixion was a Roman punishment. It was exceptionally painful and exceptionally humiliating. And it was reserved for the enemies of the state, the enemies of Rome. But here you have the Jews saying, we want the most painful punishment, the most humiliating punishment, and the punishment that brands the person as a rebel against the state. Effectively, they're saying, we, we want the, the form of execution that shows this man is a rebel against Israel. And Pilate's still kind of in a last-ditch effort, like, um, uh, this guy's innocent. I know this guy's innocent. Um, Maybe I can maneuver things to where uh, where the crowd would choose differently. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And at this point, it's just the mob mentality has taken over. But they shouted all the more, he must be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather a riot was beginning. Now, this is significant because by this time, uh, Pilate has had a lot of snafus with um, the Jews. He has slaughtered many of them. He's gotten in trouble with the emperor many times. He's kind of had a strong, back in Rome, he kind of has a strong patron that's protected him, but probably by this time that patron is dead. And so he's on his own. And Rome doesn't like riots. Rome wants things calm, wants things in order, and so he's got a riot on his hands starting. And so even though he knows this person's innocent, he's going to try to relieve the situation. But rather than, uh, uh, but rather than uh, that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm disclaiming all responsibility. This wasn't my decision. This is your guys' decision. He's trying to cleanse himself from blood guilt. Uh, Do you notice what he says to the crowd? See to it yourselves. That should sound a little bit familiar because last week, the chief priests and elders said the exact same thing to Judas. Remember what the chief priests and elders last week said when Judas said, I betrayed innocent blood? They said, that's not our problem. You see to it. And something similar is happening here where now it's not the chief priests and the elders. Now it's Pilate saying to the chief priests and the elders and to the rest of the nation of Israel, you see to it. You see to it. And what we're going to find is like, what, what did Judas go out and do? He hung himself to try to atone for his own guilt. He accepted the blood guilt of Jesus and he hung himself. And the nation is going to do the exact same thing. Look at what happens. See to it yourselves. Verse 25, and all the people. Now, don't miss that. So far, it's been the crowd, the crowd, the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. And then all of a sudden, Matthew intentionally switches to this phrase, all the people. Now, why is that? Because this way of referring to all the people is a way of referring to the entire nation of Israel. This is the normal way you would refer to the nation of Israel. We were like, well, wait a minute. I thought this was just a Jerusalem crowd. Like, not everyone. Well, the way Matthew's framing it, he's saying that crowd that was crawling for Jesus' blood and crucifixion is representative of the entire nation of Israel. 
The leaders of Israel had led the crowd into this decision. And the nation of Israel says this. His blood is on us and our, our children. It's not a wish. It's not a wish. It's a statement. His blood is on us and on our children. What are they doing? They're accepting responsibility. Pilate is saying, I'm cleansing. I'm backing away from this. This is on you guys. And they're happy to accept. They think they're doing the right thing. This is a blaspheming Messiah. He has uh, nothing to do with this. Uh, we want the freedom fighter instead. We will gladly welcome the blood guilt because we think we're right. We think God will vindicate us for doing this. His blood is on us and on our children. Now, a lot of commentators say, well, see, that's just that generation and their kids. I don't think so. I think this is a way that you normally in the scriptures that is referring not only to that generation, but to future generations. In other words, Israel and the way that Matthew is framing this is that he's saying Israel has welcomed on itself the blood guilt of killing its Messiah. And then events take their fold. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged. Now you've probably got a little footnote in your Bible. What does scourging mean? Um, you've probably heard this before, but you get a, a whip with nine strands on it. And at the end of some of the strands, you've got some, you know, some wood and some bone and some stone. And scourging was a thing that you would do before crucifixion. Uh, many people died from it because uh, there was no limit except for the decision of whoever was doing and applying the scourging to what was happening. But it would shred your skins, the skin to the point where you could see intestines and bone. But it was a standard procedure before going to crucifixion. So Jesus is scourged and is delivered to be crucified. Delivered to who? Well, delivered to Pilate's soldiers. See, the soldiers are, the Roman soldiers are still going to carry out the crucifixion, but Pilate has said, look, we're going to do this for you, but the blood guilt is on you guys. That is what is happening. At this point, everything that Jesus has said, I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the elders. And from there, I'm going to be delivered over to the nations, and then I'm going to be crucified. Everything is happening exactly as Jesus has predicted. Now, remember who Matthew is talking to. He's talking to a Jewish audience. And what did he just say to his Jewish audience? He said, uh, we as a nation, we have the primary blood guilt on us for crucifying the Messiah. Now, unfortunately, through history, that has promoted anti-Semitism. But that's not what Matthew's trying to do. Uh, what Matthew is trying to do is uh, show the nation of Israel exactly what those preaching in the early chapters of Acts. If you go to the early chapters of Acts, uh, the, the Jews, Israel, is addressed and saying, You, you crucified the Messiah. You rejected the king. You chose a murderer instead of your rightful king. That's what they say. They say it very bluntly. Why? Because to, the, design, the design is for Israel to accept its responsibility. And then the preachers in the early chapters of Acts say this. Uh, you know how you escape this, Israel? 
you repent and you trust the atonement of the Messiah. The very thing that you did in crucifying the Messiah, that very act is the only act that will actually appease the Father's wrath for your action. You see, that's what Matthew has been building up to, even in the Last Supper. What has Jesus said? This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. You mean even the sin of betraying Jesus, the rightful king, God become man, the Messiah, and and having him crucified, even that sin, Jesus' blood will atone for that and cover that and wash it off? See, Pilate's trying to wash off blood from his hands. Did he do it? No, of course not. Where can you only have cleansing? Only through the blood of Jesus, even if you were one of those who instigated his crucifixion. That is the message of the gospel. We go back even to the broader perspective of Matthew and of the Bible. Why was Jesus on the cross? Why did he go there? Well, Matthew says it from the very beginning. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's the same thing that Isaiah 53 was talking about. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only reason that Jesus went to the cross, the most horrific, humiliating death that could be imagined is because it gave some inkling of the horror of our sin. Even the most minuscule sin that you could think of, a white lie, or taking something that really wasn't that important but didn't belong to you, stealing. Even the smallest sin you can imagine, that is an offense against an infinitely holy God and worthy of punishment that we can't even imagine. And we only get some inkling of how horrific our sin is by looking at the crucifixion of the God-man on the cross. But that very horror, we said this last week, that very horror is the only thing that is our salvation. Surrendering and saying, yeah, my sin deserved that. It was right. And I deserve to be that and worse. But Jesus atoned for sin. That's what he says. Here's my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin so that God can see it and say, it's cleansed. You're free from blood guilt. How do we know that that actually happened? Well, it's because Jesus rose again. He showed that he atoned for not just the sin of one person, but for the sins of all of his people. All of the mountainous debt and horror of sin that we have committed, he paid it all, and it was accepted, and we are cleansed before a holy God if, and only if, you surrender. You stop living for yourself. You stop trying to justify yourself. You stop trying to be your own king your paltry little kingdom. And you trust, you bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you trust that he will have you and he will. And you live for him through repentance and faith through what he did on the cross. Yes, the primary responsibility goes to the Jewish nation. That's why they're at where they're at today. They exist because God hasn't given forsaken his promises to Israel. He is not. That's why they still exist as a people. 
but they're in exile. And until they, to a person, surrender and trust in the atonement of their Messiah for their sin, they'll be in the same state. But it's really all of us, whether you're talking Israel, Pilate, Herod, all of us. And the only way of escape is through repentance and faith in Jesus. Recognize your sin leading to Jesus' crucifixion and surrender to him as righteous king for your atonement. Let's pray. Father, we can hardly fathom the cross. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you have spoken, that though we are guilty and vile people, that there is cleansing, there is washing, there is atonement, there is acceptance, because Jesus, you, you went all the way for the sake of your people out of love, out of love for your Father, out of love for your people. And Father, out of love for your people, you sent your Son. Out of the love of the Trinity, it, it only this is possible. And we praise you, Lord. We ask for grace to grasp the depths that are there at the cross. To surrender, to trust, and to live as Jesus subjects joyfully because he is the rightful king. Lord, help us to live that way this week in trust and repentance. If any here do not know you, grant them repentance, we would ask. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.